ladies and gentlemen. I regard it as a great privilege to be invited to take part in this conference, which is devoted to the thought of the late Dietrich von Hildeberg. I fully share the conviction of His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI, expressed when he was still a cardinal, that von Hildebrand's place in the intellectual history of the Catholic Church in the 20th century will be a prominent one when this history is written. This conference may well serve as a first step towards such a well uh, deserved recognition. I happen to belong to a theological tradition which approaches theological and philosophical questions in a way different from that to which von Hildebrand belonged in many respects. As an Orthodox, I am shaped intellectually by the thought of the Greek fathers rather than that of St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, who lie behind von Hildebrand's intellectual formation. And yet, at this ecumenical age in which we live, Eastern and Western traditions are no longer indifferent to each other. In our effort to restore full communion as one and a divided church, we are becoming more and more aware of the need to ask ourselves how we view not only our past, but also the fundamental existential questions preoccupying human beings at all times. Philosophers such as von Hildebrand and the questions they discuss are of ecumenical significance today. They are important for Catholics and Orthodox alike just as they are for every person seeking illumination and deeper understanding of their human condition. My acquaintance with the thought of uh, von Hildebrand has arisen out of my preoccupation with the personalism of patristic thought, particularly of the thought of the Greek fathers. It has been by no means a deep acquaintance, as it is essentially limited to his book on the nature of love. But it has been sufficient to arouse in me a great interest and fascination, leading to an attempt to compare his views with those of the Greek fathers, which remains always, of course, my personal intellectual ground. Thus, in the present paper, an attempt will be made to present the Greek patristic concept of the person with a view to the personalism of Dietrich von Hildebrandt. Some of von Hildebrandt's ideas will be picked up in order to indicate common ground as well as points of divergence. It is hoped that in this way, von Hildebrandt's thought will be placed in a broader ecumenical context and its relevance may become apparent beyond the bounds of the Catholic thought. So first, person as an ontological category. One of the fundamental 
contributions of the Greek fathers to personalist thought is the elevation of the concept of the person to the highest ontological level. In the ancient world, both Greek and Roman, the idea of the person lacked ontological content. For the ancient Greeks of the classical period, prosopon was a term associated with the theater and indicated the mask worn by the actors on the stage. There was also an understanding of the term in its anatomical sense, that is, as the part of the face just beneath the eyes or the cranium, as we find it in Aristotle's History of Animals and in Homer's Iliad. But even in Aristotle himself, the term prosopon or prosopion very soon came to be used in the theatrical sense which prevailed ever since in classical antiquity. A prosopon is not what someone really is, but rather what one wishes or pretends to be. Prosopon indicates a tragic existence and does not have the metaphysical quality of being qua being, which Aristotle and Greek philosophy in general reserved exclusively for the notion of usia, substance. A similar connotation was given by the Roman, uh, Romans to the Latin equivalent of prosopon, namely persona. The origins of this term are still a matter of dispute. If the prevailing theory associating the origin of the word with the Etruscan fersu found in funerary represent, representations is accepted, the original connection of the term with the theatrical use would appear to be plausible. As the term finally established itself in Latin literature, it became more and more clear that the Romans used this term in a way not very different from that of the Greeks, namely in the sense of the role one plays in his or her social life, particularly in one's relation with the state. Uh, even today we use the expression person morale to indicate uh, an institution uh, or, or an identity which has no real ontological content but is a relational identity vis-a-vis -vis the state. It was in fact with the Greek, the Greek fathers that the term prosopon acquired an ontological meaning. This happened in connection with the discussions concerning the doctrine of the Holy Trinity in the fourth century when the Cappadocian Fathers, for the first time in history, identified the term prosopon with that of hypostasis, that is, with a term used uh, more or less as equivalent, or at times as identical, with usia, or substance. With the formula proposed by these Fathers, and 
used ever since in the <laughs> theology of the church. God is one substance, three persons, or hypostasis. The term person was raised to the highest ontological level. Being a person no longer means wearing a mask and acting or playing a role in society, but possessing the quality of being in its fullest sense. By being used to indicate God's very being, the notion of the person acquired the highest and fullest ontological or metaphysical significance. Now, in reading von Hildebrandt, one is struck by a similar insistence on the ontology of personhood. On the very first page of his introduction to the nature of love, he writes, I quote, personal being stands incompar incomparably higher than all impersonal being, and in doing justice to the distinctive character of personal being, one penetrates much deeper into the realm of being and of metaphysics. It is noteworthy that in insisting on the ontological character of the person, for Hildebrand contrasts this with what he calls mere psychology. Uh, this is a most welcome contrast, as I think coincides with the Greek patristic view of the person. According to the Cappadocian Fathers, the persons of the Holy Trinity are not to be understood in psychological terms, that is, as uh, centers of consciousness, while, or of will, etc. Since all psychological categories, including will and consciousness, are applicable to all three persons, being properties of their common usia, all three divine persons possess the same will, and if we wish to use anachronistically a modern term, the same consciousness. Psychology and ontology are to be clearly distinguished. But although von Hildebrand seems to say precisely this, a careful reading of his analysis suggests that he understands psychology and the person in a way different from that of the Greek fathers. Here the divergence between Greek patristic and Latin Augustinian view of the person is probably at stake. Augustine, as we know, illustrates the persons of the Holy Trinity by using such terms as memory for the Father, knowledge for the Son, and will for the Spirit. These terms he borrows from Platonic or Neoplatonic psychology. Following this, Western personalism from the Middle Ages to modern times has understood the person as a thinking subject, conscious of itself and of other beings, the key notion for personhood being that of consciousness. Von Hildebrand seems to do precisely the same that thing, to follow that tradition. In explaining what he means by personal beings, he equates them with 
conscious beings. And yet in a puzzling way, he writes that, I quote, it is obviously nonsensical to regard the consideration of consciousness as trailing off into psychology, unquote. Apparently for him, terms such as consciousness, willing, loving, rejoicing, mourning, and repenting are not to be regarded as merely psychological. He speaks of the essence of these things, thus ontologizing, in some sense, what is commonly regarded as psychological. This is crucial as it enables von Hildebrandt to work out an ontology of love. Love, according to him, appears to be psychological only if we begin with the observation of our, of our feelings and use them as analogies by which to understand what love really is. <laughs> if I understand him well, there is an essence somehow in things such as will, love, etc., which in a sense is given to us and we do not arrive at them by ascending from the lower to the higher. These are extremely important points to which we shall come back later. But for the moment, let me note the difference between the view von Hildeberg has of psychology from that of the Greek fathers. For the latter, the person cannot be defined with terms such as will, consciousness, etc., or even love. Love is common to all three persons of the Trinity. It is not a hypostatic or personal quality. For what distinguishes the person from the nature or substance of God is absolute uniqueness to the point of making it impossible for us to indicate the difference of one person from another, except by referring to the way he derives ontologically, to the tropos hyparxos, as they say. The father is not the son because he is not begotten, but is the begetter. And he is not the spirit because he does not proceed and vice versa. The language we can apply to a person is therefore purely, on, purely ontological. It refers exclusively to the way of being, tropos hyparxus. Other than that, the person remains a mystery, an apophatic notion. All this brings von Hildebrandt very close to the personalism of the Greek fathers and at the same time distances him from them. His insistence on avoiding the use of analogy ascending from lower to higher levels in order to arrive at the essence of personhood is most welcome from the point of view of the Greek patristic thought. Personhood is given not arrived at from lower or instinctive experiences by way of analogy. But the essence of what is given as personhood is not translatable in psychological terms of any kind. It remains simply a tropos hyparxus, that is, a way of being. 
The real issue between the personalism of Augustine and that of the Greek fathers has to do precisely with the question whether, in order to be a person, <clears throat> you need to possess some quality or other, uh, any quality other than being yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. That is being truly and being unique and irreplaceable. I leave aside the question whether consciousness, will, etc., cannot in fact be found uh, also in impersonal beings, such as animals, which would make the consciousness of the human person a matter of degree, that is, of a qualitative and not of a radical difference. The difficulty with von Hildebrandt's association of the notion of consciousness with that of personhood makes itself apparent when we apply the idea of person to God. Can we speak of the divine persons as three centers of consciousness? Perhaps for von Hildebrandt, and this is our fundamental difference, the idea of person is not derivable from the revelation of divine personhood. It is not an accident that he makes almost no reference to the Holy Trinity in dealing with personhood. In fact, he carefully distinguishes divine love from human love, the former having an, as he calls it, an, an all-encompassing character which infinitely separates it in a categorical respect from any human love." Unquote. For our philosopher, the mysteries of faith, quote, cannot be the object of philosophical analysis. Unquote. We cannot love as God loves. It seems that theological personalism and philosophical personalism can never merge or coincide in von Hildebrand's concept of love. Now, let's come to the person as a relational category. Person is for the Greek fathers as well as for Augustine a relational category. It is describable as hesis by the Cappadocians and as relatio by Augustine. One person is no person. You have to exist in relation to someone else in order to be called a person. Von Hildebrand seems to hold the same view. In fact, he repeatedly refers to the structure I-thou, borrowed apparently from Martin Buber and Gabriel Marcel, as the fundamental structure of personal existence. For, for Hildebrand too, the person is a relational category. But it would be instructive to take note of the nuanced way in which he dis distances himself from both Buber and Marcel. In the first place, while accepting Buber's I-thou structure, he refuses to accept Buber's position that in a dialogical situation, the other is taken entirely as subject and in no way as object. 
Equally, Gabriel Marcel's distinction between je and moi, which again results from a clear and strong contrast between subject and object, does not seem to meet fully with Hildebrand's von Hildebrand's approval. Von Hildebrand is anxious to defend the structure subject-object, while maintaining that if I th while maintaining that of I thou. In a long excursus in his uh, nature, of, nature of Love, he states the view that there is an unacceptable way of understanding object by which we neutralize the other, as for example in science, which however must be distinguished from the primary datum, as he calls it, that the other stands on the other side of myself. I quote, even in the interpenetration of looks, that expresses, uh, looks that expresses love, this duality has a central position. The consciousness of my own self and of the other person to whom I am directed, to whom my love refers, to whom I look and to whom I give myself is in a purely formal respect a subject-object situation, different as it may be from other subject-object situations." Unquote. Why is von Hildebrand so anxious to defend the subject-object structure? I believe that he is so for two reasons. A because he wants to preserve at all costs the idea of person as individual, and B, because he operates with the notion of consciousness as a fundamental dimension of personhood. The subject-object structure, purified from all negative nuances of objectification, understood as uh, uh, neutralization, serves as a guarantee that these two dimensions of personhood, namely individuality and consciousness, will be preserved, could be preserved. In so doing, von Hildebrandt shows that he belongs faithfully to the personalistic tradition inaugurated by Augustine and Boethius in the fifth century and established firmly ever since in Western thought. Augustine, as we know, was perhaps the first Christian writer to lay so much stress on consciousness, as it is evident particularly in his Confessions. Boethius, on the other hand, seems to have been the first philosopher in the West to give us a definition of person as an individual endowed with rationality persona est nature rationabilis individua substantia. Von Hildebrandt, faithful to this tradition uh, that in love, the union of, the two, of persons is all the deep for the very reason, he says, that as person they cannot lose their individual existence. <laughs> And he continues, it is also much deeper because it is a conscious experience of union, 
whereas all union in the non-personal world is a non-conscious and non-experienced union. I leave again aside the question whether such a statement would do justice to all impersonal beings, for example, to animals, who, as Darwin has demonstrated, do not lack consciousness at all in their relational existence. The problem on which I should like to focus our attention is the philosophical one. And it is this, that a certain divergence between von Hiddelbrand and the Greek fathers at this would emerge. As we have already indicated, for the Greek fathers too, the person is relational and at the same time hypostatic, which means in a sense individual, that is unique, unrepeatable, distinctly other. In any form of union between persons, therefore, especially in love, there is no amalgamation or absorption involved, as von Hildebrandt would also insist. <coughs> but there is a fundamental question that ought to be asked. Is this individuality or uniqueness of the person established before or after the union or relationship? Do we first exist as persons and then relate? Is the person an entity that is a personal identity distinct from other entities already before he or she enters into the loving relationship? Does a person love another person or does one person, uh, does one become a person by loving another person? Is there an ontological dependence of the person on, uh, uh, in the sense that my being a person depends on the other and not on myself? Von Hildebrand seems to tackle this, these questions, albeit in a very indirect way. He discusses at length all conceivable ways of relating and of union between persons from the level of, common, uh, of community, which he had already explored in his Die Metaphysik uh, der Gemeinschaft, uh, to those of sexual, marital, neighbor, and even briefly ecclesial relations. In all these discussions, I cannot help but detect the view that in answer to the questions I just raised, the person exists as person already before he or she enters into relationship with another person. Love is not ontologically constitutive of the person. What constitutes the person ontologically is individuality and consciousness and not love. You still are a person, albeit imperfectly and unhappily, even if you do not love. 
This brings to the fore two aspects of the theme of love, which form also part of von Fittelbrand's investigations. The first is the relation of love to knowledge, and the other is the love of self. With regard to the first question, von Hildebrandt would appear to me uh, to follow again the traditional Western view that knowledge precedes love, as both Augustine and Thomas Aquinas would insist, making this axiom also the ground of the idea of filioque. In a nuanced presentation of von Hildebrandt's thought, John F. Crosby, would prefer to say that for our author, I quote, the relation between love and knowledge is a mutual relation, unquote. But I personally find it difficult to grasp this mutuality without somehow presupposing uh, the existence of the person as a person before the loving relationship appears. For how could an exchange of priorities between love and knowledge could ever take place without the identity of the knowing subject having been established already before the loving relationship? The self and the other may affect each other, but they do so only because they already exist as individual entities. Von Hildebrandt understands love as self-transcendence, but he's quick to add that, as again John F. Crosby remarks, I quote, a human being is constituted as person, not just in the moment of self-transcendence, but also in the moment of relating to himself. Unquote. At this point, Fort Hildebrandt introduces his idea of Eigenleben, which is rendered by uh, Crosby with the English term subjectivity. An analysis of this idea shows clearly, I think, the indebtedness of von Hildebrandt to the tradition which I uh, which identifies person with conscious individual and establishes the ontological identity of the person prior to its relationship of love. For him, there are two errors that may commit, that, that one may commit in dealing with love and the person. One is to deny self-transcendence and thus reduce me to the biological, a plant or an animal. The other is to rob me, I quote, of my character as a full subject and destroys thus the personal in me by exaggerating the objective to the point of dissolving that which makes me a subject, I quote. In short, a person is capable of transcending itself, but it is so through its capacity of being conscious, not only of the other, but also of itself as subject. Persons, therefore, a person, therefore, 
is a being that, thanks to its endowment with consciousness, can both transcend and assert itself as subject. The bipolarity and mutuality between the self and the other, between knowledge and love, is only an apparent one. In fact, everything springs from the self, as everything hangs on consciousness of an already existing self, as well, of course, as of the conscience of an already existing other. The two to others already established ontologically. This is further illustrated by the idea of love of self, which occupies considerable space in von Hildebrandt's dimension, discussion of love. The idea of Eigenleben is developed in order to stress the importance not only of subjectivity as consciousness, but also of subjectivity in terms of love. A fully altruistic love, which has no uh, desire for self-interest, no aspiration for its own happiness, lacks Eigenleben and implies a deficient personhood. Only a, a combination of self-transcendence with Eigenleben can do justice to full and true personhood. This is why von Hiddelbrand rejects uh, any religiously uh, driven altruism which seeks only the good of the others and does not care for being loved and enjoying happiness. Now, if we place all this in the light of Greek patristic thought, how would it appear? The answer has to be carefully worked out, for there is not a clear yes or no to such complex issues as love and personhood. The person is clearly, for the Greek fathers, a distinct identity which in no way can be amalgamated, confused, or absorbed in a relationship of love. In this respect, there is full appreciation of Hildebrand's personalism. But the question whether this distinct identity precedes or follows upon the relationship of love requires careful examination. Drawing from Trinitarian theology, the Greek fathers would insist that personal identity and distinction, distinctiveness, are inconceivable prior to relation and communion. I am other because I am in communion with someone other than myself. This means that I am not a person until I relate to someone else. My identity is established only through love. There is no I until there is communion with a thou. My personal distinctiveness and individuality, hypostasis, is not an a priori datum, but a gift of the other. My self-transcendence is not so much an effort 
or an achievement that comes from me, as it is a call and a gift from one who loves me and calls me out of anonymity and similarity with other beings to the uniqueness implied in the name of thou. Until this happens, I am not a person. I may be a conscious individual, but I am not an individual in the personal sense. This may sound like Buber's or Marcel's dialogical structure of existence, but it is not quite so. For with these authors, personhood is born out of relationality, while in our case, it is not from, but through relationality, that personhood emerges. The real source of otherness is not relation as such, but another, other than myself. In terms of Trinitarian theology, this means that the persons of the Trinity do not derive from the relationship between them, as Buber, I think, would say, but from the Father, who generates the Son and brings forth the Spirit. Persons are caused ontologically not by love as such, but by another person. Love mediates, but does not cause. There is always an asymmetry in love, alongside with the mutuality and response, and response. Love always flows originally from the other towards me, not from me towards the other. In love, there is always a call and a response to a call. The importance of the other uh, as the initiator of love is far more crucial and decisive in the emergence of love than response and reciprocity. This is evident in the fact that there can be love even if there is no response or mutuality. We can see this in the case of love of enemies, which Christ exalts as the highest form of love, or even the love of God himself towards human beings and creation. It is of course true, as von Hildebrand points out, that in every form of love, including God's love for us and creation, there is an expectation and desire for response. Von Hildebrand is right when he criticizes as deformed love an extreme altruism that declares itself as totally uninterested in response and mutuality. Love always and by nature seeks response, but it is still alive and in full strength, even when it is met with indifference or even hatred. What one misses in von Hildebrandt's notion of love is the cross. It is on the cross that love-seeking response meets with rejection and hatred. Uh, painful as it is for love, 
The cross does not manage to annihilate, annihilate it. On the contrary, according to St. John's Gospel, the cross is the glory of love, the glorification of love. While therefore, it is right to say with von Hildebrand that an altruistic love that denounces any claim to reciprocity is not true to its nature, it would be wrong to imply by that that the lack of response deforms love and affects its very nature. In fact, love, being, as we said earlier, by nature asymmetrical, as it originates from a call from the other, always involves an asymmetrical response. The cross, therefore, as the suffering imposed on love by the lack of response, or by a deficient response, is part of any definition of love. It belongs to love's very nature. And now this leads us to the next section, the last one of our discussion of von Hildebrand's personalism, namely, the person as an ethical category. Von Hildebrand's interest in ethics is known from his earlier work on this subject. It was therefore to be expected that in dealing with love, he would also introduce the ethical dimension into personalism. This happens with his idea of value response. The way he treats and analyzes this idea is worthy of special discussion. The most important aspect of his analysis of the idea concerns his endeavor to personalize ethical concepts such as value. Uh, this, thus, he is particularly uh, interested to dissociate value in the case of love from the Platonic view that values such as goodness and beauty respond to a need which is fulfilled by love. I love the other not for his or her goodness or beauty, but for his or her own sake. He carefully avoids any reduction of the goodness and beauty, of goodness and beauty, etc., to a value in itself and on its own. The individual person is always thematic that's a favorite term of his, to any value. It is not the goodness or beauty found in a person that draws me to him or her, and my love is not a response to these values as such, but to these values as they exist in this particular person. I have called this personalization of ethics because traditionally, at least since Kant, ethical values tend to be approached as categorical imperatives possessing their moral authority regardless of the person they can be found in. Von Hildebrand does not totally depart from this tradition, even in certain cases of love, such as love of neighbor, in which the value of goodness and beauty is not a condition for loving response. But in cases such as friendship or love between man and woman, this condition applies fully and should never be dissociated 
from the individual person itself. I leave aside a host of questions that come to mind with regard to the legitimacy of bringing together two concepts into one, value and person, without allowing for the possibility, the risk, I would say, that a mutual exclusion between them may arise. Value and person may well be, in certain cases, mutually exclusive. And I concentrate on the question whether and what extent love in its nature can be tied up to value of any kind. I begin with a theological point arising again from Trinitarian theology, which is the starting point of patristic personalism, both Latin and Greek. If a person is unique in an absolute metaphysical sense, any attachment to it of a moral quality would diminish or put to risk its absolute uniqueness. Values such as goodness, beauty, etc., can be applied to more than one person. This is the case with the persons of the Holy Trinity. All three are equally good, just, omniscient, or, if you wish, uh, beautiful. And the same is true of human beings as well. If my love for one particular person is defined as a value response, why limit my love to this particular person and not extend it to the rest? If the answer is that I freely choose this particular person and not the others, although the same value is to be found in them too, this means that my love is not in truth a response to the value of the person but to the person as such. This would mean logically that it is conceivable that love may or may not depend on value. To join the person to, to, uh, to a category that could be found in another person as well would mean putting the risk, putting to risk its absolute metaphysical uniqueness. In other words, making the person thematic in the case of love uh, as value response, as von Hildebrand would like to do, is to impose on two concepts, uh, one defining uniqueness and another generality, a coexistence and cohabitation that would run, would run against each other's metaphysical essence and uh, peculiarity. In reflecting as deeply as possible on von Hiddelberg's insistence that there should be always a quality, a value in the persons we love, I have come to the conclusion that this insistence is closely associated with, if not due to, the understanding of person as an individual, that is, as an entity established already, as I said earlier, before the relationship of love, and not as an identity emerging through this relationship. This conclusion is confirmed by what John F. Crosby writes in response to Jean-Luc Marianne's uh, view, that love should never have a sufficient reason uh, 
I quote this response as it is found in the introductory study to the nature of love. We conclude by observing that it would seem to be of no little importance for the phenomenology of love to acknowledge with von Hildebrand this role of beauty of the beloved in awakening, awakening love. For one could well wonder if the beloved person will really feel loved if the lover advances towards her entirely on his own initiative and is already fully constituted as lover prior to being drawn by her. Will she not feel somehow ignored as person if she provides no part of the reason for the advance of the lover?" Unquote. The ontological implication is quite clear. In love, the lover as well as the beloved must necessarily be somehow constituted as individuals before the loving relationship takes place. Any assumption that love may bring about new identities, personal identities, is to be excluded as making phenomenologically no sense. All this leaves me puzzled as a theologian. What can I make of my faith in God as creator of nothing, out of nothing? Did he not create out of love? And was this love conditioned by a beauty already existing in what apparently did not as yet exist? When he declared his creatures very good, was this a response to a beauty of creation or a gift or a gift to creation? If God's love can live, can bring about new identities, new entities, and endow them with beauty, this means that beauty does not pre-exist as a condition of personal love. It rather follows upon it. Now we admit that this is a question of the theologian. The philosopher may bypass it by calling it love at another level. I have noticed that von Hillebrand often resorts to this distinction. But when I come to Christ and the kind of love that uh, he not only reveals to me, but demands of me, I find it difficult to make a sharp distinction between theology and philosophy. To what sort of beauty does Christ respond when he loves the sinner? Not far from the place of this meeting, there is a painting by Caravaggio depicting Christ's call to Matthew the publican. Every time I look at it, I am captured by Matthew's surprise that Christ calls him rather than someone else. What did he find in me? He's asking. There is not simply an insufficient reason in love, as Marion would put it, but quite often in the love revealed in Christ, there is no reason at all. As soon as this sort of love is demanded 
also of me. The idea of value response proposed by von Hildebrandt becomes for me problematic, both theologically and ethically. And now my conclusions and I finish. I have been asked to speak on von Hildebrandt's discussion of love in the light of patristic thought. This has inevitably involved me in a theological critique of someone who insists on being a pure philosopher, because the fathers were primarily theologians. While admitting that there is a difference between theology and philosophy, I find it difficult to dissociate these two approaches when it comes to subjects such as personhood and love. This is so not only for historical reasons, since, as I have already remarked, the idea of person originally emerged from theological preoccupations, but also for profound existential ones. For the philosopher, as well as for the theologian, personhood implies transcendence, as von Hildebrand would also say. And this gives rise to the question of how this transcendence is conceived and lived in ordinary existence. In my presentation, I have stressed points of disagreement more than convergences. I should like to finish on a more positive tone. I have read The Nature of Love with great interest, and I have finished reading it with the impression that I have read one of the most important books I have come across in my life. In addition to the intellectual depth and the analytical vigor of his thought, I have particularly appreciated what he has to say to us on what I regard as the central theme in any dialogue between theology and philosophy namely the concept of person. Here are the points I wish to underline, particularly from the perspective of Eastern Orthodox tradition. One, the person is thematic to all relations involving values of any kind. All values are centered on the concrete person and acquire their, their meaning for us only via the person. This is a major shift in the way ethics has been presented since Kant and perhaps earlier, and constitutes, in my view, an important step towards a rapprochement between Eastern and Western personalist thought. Point two, love alone brings the human being into full awareness of his person, personal existence. This seems to challenge the traditional, since Descartes at least, and to a great extent even current view that personal fulfillment is to be found in the development of man's intellectual capacities. And in this respect constitutes a major critique of today's culture. Three, Love involves a transcendence of the human being from his self-centeredness towards the other. This transcendence is not an achievement of the self, but results 
from an encounter with the other who provokes the self-transcendence. There is a great deal of discussion in philosophy in our time of the importance of the other, with figures such as Buber, Levinas, and others being the most prominent ones, prominent ones. I have myself tried to contribute to this discussion from the Greek patristic perspective. I believe that von Hildebrandt has to say what, what, the, what von uh, Hildebrandt has to say for on love is particularly relevant to the discussion, to this discussion, as he tries to work out a balance between eudaimonism, eudaimonism and altruism. Fourth point, the importance of beauty for love and personhood. Beauty is a concept that usually is reserved for the realm of aesthetics rather than ontology. Von Hildebrandt's appreciation of this concept in relation to personalism reminds us of Dostoevsky's famous declaration, beauty shall save the world. It is an idea which remains still unexplored by theology. And for Hildebrandt's association of this idea with the concept of love is most suggestive indeed. <laughs> Something of the significance of this association may emerge if it is used in the theology of the icon on which the Orthodox Church lays special emphasis. This is an area which still awaits our investigation. Five, finally, I should like to stress the importance of von Hildebrandt's emphasis on the role of the heart in the experience of love. In the Orthodox tradition, going back to the Desert Fathers, the heart is understood as the center of love because in it, uh, uh, obedience is experienced. But in Western tradition, a dichotomy has at points, at some points occurred between will and heart. And for Hildebrandt's insistence on the role of the heart can serve as a way of liberating ethics from its bondage to the will and to practice deprived of any aspect of affectivity. These are just a few points which reveal the great potential for both theology and philosophy to be found in von Hildebrandt's rich and profound thought. It is a potential also for the theological dialogue between the two main traditions of Christian theology, the Eastern and the Western, as they try to understand each other more deeply and in relation to the existential needs of human beings. We cannot but be grateful to the, to the Dietrich von Hildebrandt legacy project for bringing this potential to our attention. Thank you for uh, listening to these comments uh, on the thought of one of the great thinkers of the Western Church, by one whose life has been devoted to the rapprochement between West and East. I do appreciate your patience.
All right. Oh, we don't have time. Oh, this is too bad. <laughs> Do we have time? We have time for one question. Okay. I've, I overrule the schedule. <laughs> so, so let's have one question at least. Is there anyone who would like to ask a question? Since you were quoted, do you want to ask a question? Yes. The microphone is coming. You too. Thank you very much for your lecture and for taking the work of the Hildebrand so seriously and thinking so closely. I can't hear you because you put your microphone too next to your Can you hear me now? Is this too far away? Is this better now? Yeah, very good. Now, thank you for your very rich lecture with all the careful, critical thought that you brought to the reading of this book. But I wanted just to ask one very elementary question about this question of person and relation, and the question of persons somehow preceding uh, the relations into which they enter. Um, it's a kind of very simple, common sense question Take the case of, let's say, a newborn child whom nobody loves, who's rejected and despised by its parents. There's no one there who loves the child. And yet, we wouldn't want to say the child doesn't exist as person. One would want to say it's not awakened as person. The love of another uh, isn't there with the power of love to awaken real personal life and awaken a sense of the self. But in some sense, it seems one would have to say, um, despite not being loved by anyone, this poor destitute child still really exists as person. Of course, it's known uh, and loved by God, but when Hildebrand acknowledges that, that, that theological dimension, but on the human level, uh, it, seems that we would have to, we, we can't, it seems hard to avoid saying the person exists but is unfortunately unawakened because no one loves it. Uh, but to say that it doesn't even exist as person seems to ascribe to human love a creative power that it doesn't really have. So I wonder how you would develop your thought in relation to If, if I understood well your question, my response would be uh, yes, in the case of uh, uh, someone who is not loved by anybody, uh, my argument would uh, uh, be difficult to be, to be accepted unless we assume that God exists and he loves him. Uh, that's why I think the concept of person and of love cannot be just a philosophical or, or an empirical problem, question. Unless we refer somehow to God, it makes no sense to speak about the person and love. How can you have a, an identity uh, 
which is established by love in a world in which it is possible not to, not to love. You need a world, so to say, God, uh, in which it is impossible not to love. And therefore, uh, I come back to the, to, 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 to the problem. Can you have a, theology, a, a philosophy of love without a theology? It's, a, it's my problem, my question. So one more from Professor Seifert. Well, um, I, I share completely Professor Crosby's uh, uh, admiration and gratitude to you for this very profound lecture. Um, I, first of all, uh, however, would like to say that Hildebrand um, does not, I think, reduce the personhood of a human being to consciousness uh, because he certainly, like in the case of Professor Crosby's remark, would say that the person of the embryo, for example, can exist, but also of an unconscious person or a person in coma or in, in some unconscious state, that a person can exist without being conscious and therefore I think he would never say that personhood is only given in or with consciousness. But he would certainly say that consciousness belongs to the actualization of the person, that every person is destined to a conscious life. And I personally couldn't understand your critique of the idea that, that a personhood is ontologically speaking um, intimately linked to consciousness, particularly if we speak not of the embryo, a human person who can exist unconsciously, but if we speak of a divine person who, who is in the perfect possession of personhood and where the idea of an unconscious God or a God who is deprived of consciousness is, it seems to me, a totally uh, absurdity in a God who is not conscious of himself or who, who doesn't know the world or who is sleeping. Or, uh, so it seems to me that, that, and I also personally cannot see how this uh, patristic teaching and theological teaching that the three divine persons have one will or one knowledge can be understood in such a way that this unity is not just the perfect oneness of their nature, of their essence, of their divinity in which they do not have separate wills in, in the sense in which, for example, human beings have separate wills. But I don't see how uh, the divine persons do not necessarily also imply a unique, irreplaceable 
conscious center of each of the divine persons because uh, otherwise we would have to say, it seems to me, that, that the, divine, the second divine person who became man, uh, I mean, if, he accept, if Christ accepted or assumed the human nature as the second divine person, then certainly he suffered and not the Father, and therefore his consciousness as the same identical divine person who also in his human uh, nature died for us on the cross, um, must be in some way another conscious center than the Father or the Holy Spirit who did not undergo the passion. So I think to, so to speak, regard the divine persons as, as uh, not in entailing a distinct, unique, conscious self uh, seems to me also theologically impossible to accept because then the person would be, so to speak, neutral in relation to consciousness. Uh, it seems to me it's an idea of, of a, so to speak, an unconscious person or a person who does not have his own conscious life and center. And I, I don't see how this is philosophically or theologically uh, tenable. Uh, that that not each person also includes, um, in the human person, I think it's tenable to say that there is the person of the embryo who is not yet conscious or the sleeping person. But in the divine person or in the fully awakened human person, I think it is impossible to conceive the person as not being also an, uh, by his nature so destined, like in the human person, or actually conscious uh, in the divine person. It seems to me a kind of contradiction to the idea of personhood to assume a person who does not also have a unique personal conscious self. Uh, and, and it seems to me, I don't see how the Trinitarian theology is compatible with not admitting that, for example, the son in becoming man and undergoing the passion, the same identical person undergoing also the suffering, unlike the Father, unlike the Holy Spirit, uh, cannot can be conceived without a unique personal and conscious self. So I don't see this um, critique, uh, and I don't think that it's nothing to do with, with the psychologizing the idea of the person because, because the consciousness is, I think, a metaphysical uh, reality and belongs to personhood. In, in a way that is completely objective, even if it is, uh, so to speak, a, a conscious being is objectively superior to any unconscious being. And I don't see that as a kind of psychologizing God to, uh, to say that it belongs to the nature of personhood to be um, either actually or potentially a, a self that is conscious of himself and of other beings. Excuse me, sir. Uh, John Henry forbade me to make my question clearer because he said 
I spoke already too long. And <laughs> so I have to obey the, my godson. And have <laughs> I don't know how to answer your question because I'm not sure that I understood what you really want to say. Uh, first of all, with regard to von Hitlerbrand himself, uh, I can uh, quote uh, at least a dozen of references in which he explicitly distinguishes non-personal existence from personal, non-personal beings from personal beings uh, on the basis of consciousness. If there are nuances which I have missed, I, I'm open to that criticism. <laughs> but I think it is, to me, uh, I mean, if I have to support my paper with references, I can at least uh, uh, use 10 or 12 references. Now, uh, it, I said I'm not sure that I understood you because Although you started from uh, more or less a denial of consciousness as being, for, for Hitler in any case, uh, uh, a part of the definition of person, uh, my impression at the end was that you wanted to give to consciousness a, a theological and also a metaphysical uh, significance. Uh, that's why I'm a little puzzled. I don't know how to, to react. Uh, however, uh, regardless of what you say, I think it's quite clear that the, for me, that if von Kilderman doesn't say that, I'll be very happy. But I think theologically, for me, it is clear that consciousness cannot be part of the definition of person theologically. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely clear. I can only reassert that. I don't have the time to really uh, develop it further. <laughs>